Luke chapter 7. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him uh, to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I told this one, go, and he goes. And to this, that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things, and calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that, time, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messengers ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, 
when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the Lord rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We play you the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang, you, we sang you a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay, pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debts forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hairs. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered had not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, friends, good evening. My name's uh, Keith. I'm a member of the 945 congregation, and it's my 
great privilege to be with you tonight and bring God's word to you. How about we pray to start off? Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your life-giving word. And Father, as we reflect upon it now, we ask that it might be a lamp to our feet and a light for our paths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, One of the wonderful capabilities God has given us is imagination. Uh, Our minds can take us to places, not just places we've been before, but places we've never been. Uh, We can think about that holiday that we're looking forward to and imagine what it might be like. And uh, depending on your particular interests, uh, we can imagine what it would be like to compose a beautiful piece of music, perhaps to drive a Formula One racing car, uh, maybe even to dream about what it would be like to have five minutes peace from your children. And it's because of imagination that, that humans can be so creative. So Johann Utzen sees an orange chopped up into wedges and he thinks, hey, there's the Sydney Opera House. Steve Jobs, uh, he has the ability to, to think, to dream up the sort of slinky elegance of the iPhone. Few things feed our imagination more than stories. Stories can take us to places we've never been and help us to notice things that we'd never notice. And uh, if you listen to that Bible passage just read to us, Luke 7, four stories we've got here. Um, Four true stories. Remember, if you're around for our Luke, the start of our Luke series, uh, these have been carefully investigated and checked out. We're dealing with history here. All of the stories involve Jesus. He interacts with a soldier, uh, with a widow, with John the Baptist via some messengers, and then in the final story with a deeply religious man called Simon and then an unnamed woman, uh, a sinner, we're told. I reckon the four stories are meant to be read together. And if you've got a Bible in front of you, I think you'll find that really helpful. Let me just point out, uh, first story starts in verse 1. Jesus finishes giving a speech, then in it goes. You get to verse 11, it says, soon afterwards, move straight into the second story. Verse 18, John's disciples told him about all these things, that is, the first two episodes. And then the last story kicks off in verse 36, follows straight on for episode 3. So what I'd like to try and do this evening is uh, use our imaginations and try and step into the four stories and see what's God saying to us here. Story 1, Jesus and the Centurion. Jesus had lots of interactions with people throughout his ministry, but very rarely does he give a strong commendation to another person. But in this story, we find what's probably the highest praise he ever offers to another person. And the really weird thing is, it's to an outsider, a Gentile, not to one of God's people. Verse 9, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. What's Jesus commending? Well, let's take a look at the story. Jesus, he comes to a little town called Capernaum. 
A centurion has a slave who is near death. Uh, a centurion's just an officer in the army, okay, in charge of about 100 men. And he's heard about Jesus, he's heard about his power, his ability to do miracles, and he thinks, well, could be an answer here. He sends off some Jewish elders to ask Jesus if he can come and heal this man who means a great deal to him. And although, although the centurion is used to telling other people what to do, he makes no demand. It's a simple request. And with the request comes a character reference. Verse 4. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. He's a good bloke, they say, right? He's a friend of the Jews. He even forked out to pay for our synagogue. You owe him. He deserves this. But that's not how the centurion sees it. He's a humble man. He sends a second delegation to Jesus explaining, I'm not even worthy to have you come into my home. He's not even worthy to come into Jesus' presence. He calls Jesus Lord. And he recognises Jesus' extraordinary authority and power and says, look, you don't even need to come to my house. You just say the word and he can be healed. Such confidence in Jesus. And the servant was healed, we're told in verse 10. But that's not the point of the story. The healings, it's almost an afterthought. Because this story is about the centurion's faith. Jesus, we're told, is amazed at this man. In human terms, this man had so much. He had wealth, he had status. He had the right to tell other people what to do. But he saw in Jesus someone exceptional. He knew he needed Jesus. He turns to Jesus. He trusts Jesus. And he, he humbly commits the well-being of this servant who meant so much to him. He entrusts that into Jesus' hands. Friends, I want to say to you, I want to ask you tonight, what cares and concerns do you need to hand over to Jesus tonight? Story two, Jesus and the widow. And here we find his seemingly accidental encounter with a grieving woman. Grief is an overwhelming emotion. Anybody who lives for any period of time knows about grief. It jumps every fence. Age, gender, culture, time. There have been some tragic and unexpected deaths in our church community in recent months. My own mother died in the middle of this year and various family members are still devastated by that loss, even the loss of an older woman. But what we find here, what we find here is an unbearably sad tale. 
A woman who has already lost her husband is now burying her only son. All funerals are difficult. But if you've ever been to the funeral of a child, you'll know everything just gets ramped up another notch. And we're not told what's going through this woman's head, but surely, surely this is sorrow upon sorrow. And as she staggers along beyond this open, beside this open coffin with her lifeless son lying in it, what else has she got to live for? Death had won. She'd never again see her boy laugh, watch him play, admire how he'd grown. And all of this has just been shoved in her face and this is her life from now on. And to add to it all, in that society, when you don't have a husband and when you don't have a son, she's alone in the world and her very future is dependent upon the kindness of others. Well, Jesus happens upon this funeral procession and he notices this grieving woman. What happens when he sees her? Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. His heart went out to her. He was moved, moved by the utter darkness of what he saw. A woman no longer with her son, having to surrender a loved one to that cruel enemy death. Jesus is moved with compassion here. And I want to say compassion, compassion's the blood that runs through Jesus' veins. But what happens next? Do you notice the end of verse 13? He said to her, don't cry. Don't cry. I mean, how stupid is that? How insensitive is that? If Jesus was doing a pastoral care course, pastoral care 101, he's just failed. Right? Deny her feelings. Tell her to buck up. She'll be right. Unless. Unless everything will be all right. Because this is no ordinary man who's just crashed this funeral. And what Jesus does next must have actually really disturbed that crowd of people gathered around because he does two things they've never seen before. The first one is he touches that coffin and according to religious law, he's just contaminated himself. And then the second thing he does is he actually takes death on and he tells the young man to get up and we're told the dead man sat up. How's that for an oxymoron? Dead people sitting up. But he does and he starts talking and Jesus hands him back to his mother. Now, this is a pretty bizarre event, isn't it, in our modern times? But back then, there's actually some meaning being conveyed here because back in Jesus' day, raising the dead to life was one of the signs that God was sending his promised king, Messiah. 
And uh, this event would have actually reminded the crowd of another incident in Israel's history. If you go back to the, an early part of the Bible, um, 900 years earlier, 1 Kings chapter 17, back then another widow had lost her son. And the prophet Elijah called upon God and the son was brought back to life. And so after Jesus does this, the crowd say, oh, a great prophet has risen amongst us like Elijah. But um, there's actually some differences in the story, you see, because Elijah had to plead with God on behalf of the woman and her dead son. Jesus didn't have to pray. Jesus speaks to the dead son directly to the corpse and he comes back to life. And so we see here Jesus is more than a prophet. Uh, in verse 13, he's actually referred to as the Lord. And in bringing life to this man, Jesus the Lord does what the Lord God did back in 1 Kings 17. And that's why the people can say, verse 16, God has come to help his people because he has. And I think Luke's trying to do something here. I think he's actually trying to, trying to lift our vision about who this man, Jesus, really is. I mean, what authority, what power over death itself? And yet, the focus of the story is not on his power. It's on his compassion. The story's not about the young man. The story's about his grieving mother. And the God we see in Jesus, sure, he can do remarkable things, yes. But what we're being told here is that Jesus' ministry is all about compassion. Compassion. God's not distant. He's not uninvolved. This is the God who visits, even intrudes into his, con his creation to, to redeem and to bless and to bring life. And in this story, we see the very heart of God, a heart that goes out with compassion to you in your need. And Jesus' heart is big enough for all of our sorrows. Story three, Jesus and John the Baptist. Now, do you ever have a... Do you ever, possibly ever, have any doubts about Jesus? Ever doubt that he is who he claimed to be? Do you ever wonder why? Why doesn't he intervene more in our world, do more stuff? Well, even John the Baptist had his doubts, and uh, we don't have time to look at this in detail, but there's a couple of things worth noting, I think. John's in prison, and his disciples bring him a message. They've heard about these two stories, Capernaum and Nain, what's happened there. And uh, so John the Baptist sends off a couple of them to ask Jesus directly, are you the one who is to come? He wants to know if Jesus is the Messiah that they've all been waiting for. And as usual, Jesus won't give them a straight answer because Jesus never answers questions straight. Um, that's my reading anyway. Verse 22, he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Lovely little collection of phrases, all taken from the prophet Isaiah, and they're all taken from contexts 
which speak about the time when God will redeem and restore his people. And Jesus is saying here, well, take a look at what I'm doing. See if it fits with what should happen when the Messiah comes. It's your call. The thing is, this is not what most people were expecting the Messiah to do because, remember, Israel at that time were occupied by enemies, by, by the Romans. They thought the Messiah would come, kick out the Romans, restore Israel as a nation. And the passage goes on to speak about the unusual nature of Jesus' ministry and John the Baptist's ministry. And that's why Jesus says something else, verse 23. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Don't stumble on account of the unusual things that I'm doing. And I think, friends, I think there's actually a warning here for us. Uh, the warning is that God, God comes to us on his terms, not our terms. And we read about here, you know, he confronts evil and suffering, he heals people. And we might, you know, sort of wonder, why doesn't he do, we might get cross, why doesn't he do these things for us today? But he hasn't promised that he'll heal our loved ones and raise them back to life. And the miracles that Jesus performed when he walked the earth, they were signs, they were, they were pointers to the fact that a unique thing is taking place in history. God's promised king has come and is doing his thing. And we shouldn't expect such activity be, uh, to be a normal part of our life. So let's not stumble over Jesus when he doesn't do what we want him to do, when he doesn't answer our prayers the way we want to see them answered. And even in the midst of our doubts, let's remember what Jesus has done for us in Jesus and trust that his way is the path of wisdom. Well, final story, story four, Jesus and a sinful woman. Uh, the scene here is a dinner party. A Pharisee has invited Jesus over for dinner and then an uninvited guest turns up. Uh, we're told, verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life. Now, I don't know how you do your dinner parties, but uh, if someone wandered in off the street to one of ours, I'm not quite sure how I'd react to that. But in those days, a meal given in honour of a major, major sort of figure, uh, they sometimes did actually leave the doors open and people could come in. And they'd stand around the walls and they'd listen in on the conversation. And that's what takes place here. The man and the woman here are on opposite ends of the social spectrum. Uh, the man is four times identified as a Pharisee, someone of religious standing, someone of preeminent place within Jewish society. And three times we're told his personal name, uh, Simon. The woman, uh, the woman, on the other hand, is a nobody. We don't know her name. She's referred to repeatedly as just the woman, a sinner, or just 
sheep. We're not told what kind of sinner she is. Many assume she was a prostitute. She may have been. But the text does not say that. And perhaps we should be careful because one of the tragedies of human history has been the tendency so often to think the worst of a woman. Whatever her sin, her reputation precedes her and no one expresses shock that she's present in the room but they are scandalised by what she does and the fact that Jesus allows her to do what she does. The woman's actions, though, they actually reflect great cost, great care, and great emotion. Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. The perfume that she poured is precious and expensive. If it was nard, which it may well have been, 500 grams costs about a year's wages. Some commentators suggest that having her hair down is sexually provocative equivalent to a woman exposing her breasts in public. Now, if she'd been married, unbound hair would have been shameful. But for an unmarried woman, loose hair normally symbolised humility, contrition and thankfulness, especially when it was accompanied by tears, as it is here. And what we see here is a humble, repentant woman, deeply devoted and thankful to the Lord Jesus. And again, we see here, this woman and the Pharisee are at opposite ends of the spectrum because in contrast to her extravagant generosity, Simon the Pharisee, well, his reception of Jesus has been decidedly cool. And when he sees what the woman does, it starts to actually eat him up inside. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Quite ironic, really, if he were a prophet. Well, He's thinking this to himself. You see what happens next? Jesus answered him. Jesus can read his mind. Perhaps Jesus is a prophet. And Jesus speaks for the first time. He tells a short parable. Two people in debt with different amounts. Neither can pay. Both have their debt cancelled. Which one will love the lender more? Verse 43. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And then something very powerful happens. Verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Well, yeah, duh, of course. 
everybody's seen what she's just done. But at another level, she's been invisible. She's been other. She's an outcast. She's ostracised. She's voiceless. She's the sinner. She's the person you stay away from. And the tragedy, isn't it? The tragedy is that this is what we so easily do. We have that negative reaction to the person who's not like us. And we fail to see the real human being standing right in front of us. And what happens next, it's ironic and it's scandalous because Jesus breathes not one word of judgment upon this woman. But he is scathing of the Pharisee. Verse 44. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. The host, the host who was meant to serve his guest, cops a serve from his guest while the woman who crashed the party was Jesus' true host. As the little parable said, um, great forgiveness leads to great love. And Jesus declares her sins forgiven. He doesn't ignore her sin, he deals with it. And whereas everybody else had seen a sinner, he sees a sinner pardoned and restored. And it's not that she's forgiven because of this great act of love, no, we're told that her faith saved her, not her love. And I think like the centurion, this, this woman realised Jesus was someone extraordinary. And like the guests say in verse 49, who is this who even forgives sins? And she knows. God forgives sins. God is present in this man, Jesus. And so she turns to him in trust for him to meet her deepest need. Well, there's our, um, there's our four stories. So what? So what? Well, let me just very quickly try and draw the threads together, see what God might be saying to us. Three quick things. One, uh, Jesus came for all. Uh, the forgiveness, the new life that he brings, the office for everyone. There's no gender gap here. There's no racial inequality. It's not about the money that you have or the money you don't have. It's not about how religious you are. Look at these people. The centurion, well-regarded, respected. The widow, well, her world had just completely fallen apart. And the sinful woman, well, she was a social pariah. She was an outcast. Jesus was there for all of them. And I don't care who you are. I don't care whether people think you're the best or people think you're the worst. I don't care what you've done. Whether you've done the best things or the worst things. I don't care how your life's going. I don't care whether you're living the best of times 
or the worst of times. The truth is, you need Jesus. You need his forgiveness. And he's there for you. Jesus came for all. The second thing, you come to Jesus by faith. This chapter begins and ends with faith. Jesus to the centurion, verse 9, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Right at the end, to the sinful woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Just think about it. Centurion, wealthy, well-respected. And yet, what did he know? He knew he was not worthy to come to Jesus. The sinful woman, well, she's got nothing. Two humble people who know when they come to Jesus, they've got nothing to bring. They have no demands that they can make. But they trust that he, in his kindness and compassion, has something to offer. You come to Jesus by faith. The third thing, faith in Jesus comes from understanding who he is. You see, having faith is no big deal. Everyone's got faith. Faith just means trust. We all trust in things. I've got faith in the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Drove over it. I've driven over it twice today, trusting it wouldn't collapse. It didn't. Everyone has faith in certain things to make them feel secure, to help them feel good about themselves, to make sense of their life, whether it's their job, their income, their children, whatever it is. No, the key thing's not having faith. It's what your faith is in. And the message of this chapter is, we don't need great faith in Jesus. We need faith in a great Jesus. And Jesus is great in this chapter. He's the one that the Jewish people have been waiting for, the one who is to come, the fulfilment of all of their hopes. He's the great prophet who can heal disease and raise people from the dead. No, no, he's more than the prophet. He's the Lord. He has the name that God has taken upon himself because he is God in human flesh, the one of whom they say, who is this that, that even forgives sins? And yet, and yet, with all of this greatness, with this power, with this authority, with this divinity, he reaches out to people in love. His heart goes out to poor, needy, helpless people. His heart goes out in compassion. Faith in Jesus comes from understanding who he is. Friends, I want to say to you tonight, he's a great Jesus. He's a beautiful Jesus. I want to say to you, trust him tonight. Trust him this week. Trust him with your life with your life. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we give you great thanks for your Son, our Lord, 
our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness you offer us in him. And Father, we ask that you would turn our hearts to him this night in faith and in confidence. Amen.